morning. I'd like to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We are actually finishing chapter one this morning. There is uh, two paragraphs left in this chapter, and we're going to finish them this morning. Um, and I've entitled the mass message, Stairway to Heaven. Now, when I say that, every time I say that, I hear the tune start playing in my head, you know. It's the, and, I, and I tell you, I meant to call Jeremy and say, hey, can you pluck out Stairway to Heaven, the beginning of Stairway to Heaven, and as I'm introducing this, you could be playing it, you know, but I don't want to get too dramatic with the whole thing. All right. <laughs> no. It's, uh, yeah, I guess that song came out when I was uh, just about to graduate high school. Yeah. <laughs> After the prologue, the first 18 verses, Lazarus gave the testimony of John the baptizer. And now he's dealing with the gathering of the early disciples of the Lord. And he's showing us how the Lord came in contact with these men and began to draw them in. In our last study, we saw John standing with two of his disciples. And when Yeshua walks by, they begin to follow Yeshua. One of them was Andrew. The other one, that Scripture didn't tell us, most likely it was Lazarus. Now the first thing Andrew does is to run and get his brother Peter and tell him, hey, we found the Messiah. And he brings him to Yeshua. Now in the account we were looking at today, we see Philip and Nathaniel and our Lord's encounter with them. So the process of making disciples continues in verse 43 through 51 through the end of this chapter. It says, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Yeshua said to him, follow me. Now it says the next day. This is the third repetition of this phrase, the next day, in this text. So what day is this? Well, I believe it's the fourth day since John the baptizer's witness of Christ. Let me break this down the way I see it. Day one starts at John 1.19. The day before Yeshua publicly arrives from the wilderness, John meets with a delegation from Jerusalem, and they're questioning him. Hey, what you know? remember, he's in a very special spot. He's in the spot where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. He's in the spot where Elijah was taken up to heaven. And they're waiting for Elijah to come again in this same spot. So he's in a very special spot. So he's down there baptizing. He's proclaiming. You know, they're saying he's a prophet. They haven't had a prophet for 400 years. So they're going down there and they say, this delegation says, now who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, no. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you then? He said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. Prepare the way of the Lord. So that's day one. Day two is in John 1.29. John introduces Yeshua publicly for the first time. Behold, the Lamb of God. Day 3 is in 135. John introduces Andrew and Lazarus to Yeshua personally. And then on day 4, which we're going to look at today, starts at 143. Peter finds Philip, and he brings him to Christ. And Philip finds Nathaniel and brings him him to Christ. Now, I think that on day 5 and day 6, they're traveling to Cana. They're traveling It's a long distance, probably two days journey up into Galilee, so they're traveling. Day seven, we'll look at next week. He's at Cana, where he performs his first miracle. All right? So they're down there in Bethany. This is where it's all happening. This is where the fourth day takes place. They're still down there. They haven't left yet. And so Philip must have been down there, which makes sense. See, these guys from up in the region of Cana, of Galilee up there, there's a real fervor for the Lord up there in that area. There's a lot of rabbis up there. There's some of the biggest rabbinic schools up there. They're serious. Now, down in Jerusalem, that's the show, okay? That's the facade. Those people are so far from God, it isn't funny. 
So they hear something's going on, and they've been expecting something for a long time. All right, They knew what Daniel prophesied, so they're all down there in that region. With the, this is where it starts. And he says he purposed to go into Galilee. Now, who purposed to go into Galilee? Who's the he here? Okay. There is no subject expressed in the Greek text of this first sentence. Now, most versions will have Yeshua in there. Alright? The NSB correctly states he, but it capitalizes to show that, in their opinion, it was Yeshua. But the natural grammatical flow would make Peter the subject here. Now, if that's the case, then Andrew brings Peter to Yeshua, and then Peter brings Philip, and Philip brings Nathaniel. So you see a flow here. There, one gets he gets saved. The first thing he does goes out and tells somebody, bring somebody. They go tell somebody and bring somebody. That's how it's all supposed to work. Now there are two reasons I think for thinking that Peter is the subject here and not Yeshua. Everyone else in this chapter who came to Yeshua came on the invitation of somebody else, not Yeshua. Some friend of theirs is going to get them. And Lazarus seems to have been stressing the importance of witnessing. And there, I guess there's actually a third one. Uh, in the Greek text, the subject's not stated. So you've got to figure out who is the subject or who, who is it talking about. All right. It says, and he found Philip. Philip's a Greek name. There's really no Hebrew equivalent to it. And, and him and Nathaniel are returning or getting ready to return home to Galilee. They're, they're still down there, but they're going to make this trip back up to Galilee together. All right, they are in Bethany after having come to this area, you know, for John's baptism. Now, the Galilee is about a good two days' journey. Remember, they're walking. All right, I've read a lot of commentators that say that this day, the fourth day, they're in Galilee. And I'm like, I don't know how they got there. You know, there wasn't a jet. It wasn't like the preachers today, you know, the Crefo Dollar who has his couple jets that he can just get in and fly somewhere real quick. They walked up there. So it's a two day journey. It took them a while. All right. Although Philip is mentioned in the Gospels, only Lazarus gives him any role in the narrative at all. Other Gospels, he's just mentioned. Yeshua, Yeshua is clearly the subject of this second sentence here. He says, And Yeshua said to him, Follow me. Now, follow me is a present active imperative. This was a rabbinic call to discipleship. When a rabbi chose somebody, he'd say, Follow me. The Jews had a set of guidelines that defined this relationship of rabbi and disciple. And in this gospel, Philip is the only person invited to follow Yeshua, that Yeshua invites. It's the only person he does this with is Philip. Now, following Christ is something every believer should be doing. I don't think there's any question about that. But I know a lot of Christians, people who believe you know, they have trusted Christ, they've come to Christ, but that's kind of the end. They just kind of end it there. They don't go on to follow Him, to be a follower. And I've heard people say, you know, you try to get into doctrine, and people say, well, I don't really get into doctrine. I just follow Yeshua. I love when I hear that. because My first question is always, who's Yeshua? And guess what? To answer that question, you have to get into doctrinal discussion. So all of a sudden, oh, you're defining Yeshua by prepositional statements? All right, so then we understand we have to understand doctrine if we're going to follow Yeshua. There's no way to be a follower of Him without understanding what He teaches, and the only way we're going to learn that is from the Word of God. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. So Andrew, Peter, Philip, they're all from the same hometown. And they're all looking for Yeshua, or they wouldn't have been down there in the first place. They went down there because they heard about John. Something's going on. 
It's the time for Messiah to show up. Let's get down there. All right? They're in Bethany. They're going up to Bethsaida. That's where they're all from. These little villages up there, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they're all, you know, really close to one another up there on the Sea of Galilee. This was a really small town. These men undoubtedly knew one another. They were probably friends before they ever became Yeshua's followers. Now later, Peter and Andrew moved their fishing business to Capernaum. And Peter married a local girl. There was a a fish-salting facility located in the town of Magdala, which is, you can see it up there next to Capernaum. So why were they all down in Bethany? Well, again... They were searching the Scriptures. There were people who were in the Word of God. They knew what Daniel said. They knew it was the time for Messiah. They heard about this prophet. Hadn't been a prophet 400 years. They want to get down there and hear what's going on. So, I mean, they make a two-day trip walking. Not an easy trip to get down there to find out what the Lord is doing. It says, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, what does a person do when he comes into contact with the living God? When someone meets and trusts Yeshua, what do they do? Well, you know, I I can't speak for everybody because I'm sure it's different, but I know for me, I was so thrilled. I was so excited. And I wasn't looking. I wasn't really interested, okay? It wasn't like I was searching all over trying to find the Lord. I, I really didn't care. I was having a good time. Someone interrupted my work and gave me a chick publication, Big Daddy. I stopped work, I read it, I came under great conviction. I trusted the Lord. The next day I went in and talked to this friend, okay, now tell me, what, what are, how does all this work? And so he's explaining the gospel to me. I trusted Christ, and I was thrilled. At that time, every Friday night, at different locations, we had a keg party. You know, we'd all pitch in, we'd buy a keg, we'd come out and we'd hang out together. So this, one, this keg party was at my house, my parents' house, I was living with my parents, and so I was all excited. I went, you know, I asked this guy, where'd you get this little booklet? He told me, Christian bookstore. I never even knew there was a Christian bookstore. You know, I went down there. I bought a ton of these tracks. I'm ready for the cake party. The cake party starts, and I'm handing out these tracks. And I was so excited because I'm thinking, you're going to see how... And they're reading it and just throwing it aside, putting it down. And I'm like, what's happening? Don't you see what that says? Nobody got it. Nobody cared. Nobody was excited. They were there for the keg, and they didn't care about anything else. You know, my grandmother used to laugh. She goes, it's just, I look out the window and you're out there, you got a beer in one hand and you're handing out tracks in the other hand, you know? And I'm like, trying to convert these people. I was really discouraged that nobody else cared. I mean, I really thought everybody at that party was going to come to Christ that day. That's, I was naive, I guess, but I was excited. And so I wanted to share it. I think that's what happens when you meet, when you have an encounter with the living God. How can you not share that with somebody else? How can you be ho-hum about it? I would think that's the normal response. You, you encounter God, you, hey, I gotta tell somebody what just happened. Well, Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel's a Hebrew name, which means God has given. And he's an interesting character. He's only found in this gospel. Five times in chapter one, once in chapter 21. He's never mentioned in the other gospels anywhere or in the New Testament. Now, some scholars identify him with Bartholomew. And the only reason they do that is because Nathaniel comes after Philip in this gospel, and Bartholomew's name comes after Philip's name in the other list of the twelve apostles. 
um, in, except in Acts 1.13. But that's kind of a weak reason, I think, to think this is Bartholomew. So we really don't know much about him other than what we learn from this fourth gospel. He goes, Philip goes to Nathaniel, he tells Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Law and the prophets, that's a common expression in New Testament times for the whole Tanakh. You know, this is what the, our Bible has told us about. Now, Philip, he's kind of an unimpressive individual, but there's one thing that's significant about him. He was a student of the Word of God. Hey, he's excited. We've been reading this. We've been studying this. We've been anticipating this. We've been looking for this, and he's here. He's a student of the Word of God, and when he finds Nathaniel, he says to him, we found him. The one the Word of God talks about. He studied Moses. He studied Daniel. He, he could count. And he knew the 70 weeks were coming to an end and that the time he was living, they were expecting Messiah. He knew of the law of Moses and what it taught concerning Messiah. He knew the prophets. He knew all this and he was waiting. Now, isn't it interesting when you go to Jerusalem, none of those people there seem to be waiting. They're all like, no, nah, this is not right. We don't, no, they don't care any of it, you know? But these people from up in Galilee, like I said, this is really the spiritual headquarters in that time. Huh? Yeah, well, yeah, there were, there were some down in Jerusalem, okay? But we're talking about Jerusalem leadership, okay? The leadership, you know, they were corrupt for the most part. Some of them even came to Christ. So Yeshua said to his disciples, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So Yeshua's chiding with these disciples and he said, you know, why don't you understand it? This is in your Bible. Why didn't you get it? Later on, he says to these people, now he said to them, these are my words which I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So they didn't get it. But he was saying they should have got it because it was there. Now the prophecies which Philip referred to may have included Deuteronomy 18. talks about a prophet that was going to come. Like Moses, who would you know, communicate with them. Yeshua was the great descendant of David who was to come and reign on David's throne forever. But whom David himself would address as my Lord. Yeshua fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of a child born of a virgin whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Yeshua was the lamb foretold by Isaiah. He was the righteous branch foretold by Jeremiah. He was the true shepherd foretold by Ezekiel. And He was the Messiah, the anointed one foretold in Daniel 9. And Philip looked at the prophecies of Messiah like these and he looked at Yeshua and he made a connection. And he ran to Nathaniel and tells him excitedly, we found him. He's here. You can't imagine, you know, the excitement of spending all that time digging in the Bible and waiting and finding him. Well, Phil's statement suggests that the early disciples understood Messiahship from the Tanakh, not only in a political sense. So, so they kind of understood. They didn't understand totally, but they knew that this was what the Tanakh talked about. There was coming a Messiah. So Nathaniel, he's sitting under a fig tree. What's he doing under the tree? I would say he's probably meditating on the Scriptures. So how in the world do you know that? We'll talk about that in a minute, okay? And I think he's meditating specifically on the life of Jacob. 
reading about Jacob, meditating on Jacob. And Philip interrupts him and he said, we found him. Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's wrong with those statements? He is not Joseph's son and he wasn't born in Nazareth. Right? (laughs) Neither one of those. But, listen, this is not a mistake here. Son of Joseph is the normal way of distinguishing one person from another. You know, Joseph was Yeshua's legal father under the law. He became his legal father when Joseph named Yeshua at his circumcision. So there's really no suggestion here that Joseph is Yeshua's birth father. That's not what he's trying to say. He said, you know, that son of Yeshua. I mean, the son of Joseph, the guy who grew up with him there. And Yeshua was born in Bethlehem. But he did grow up in Nazareth, so he's from Nazareth. So that's how he describes him. He heard about him. He says, hey, this, this is Joseph's son, the guy from Nazareth. He's the one. And so Nathaniel says to him, really? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why would he say that? No, I think the reason he said that is because Nazareth and Canaan were football rivalries. And see, Nazareth, had kept, kept, their team kept beating Canaan's team every year, and so they just hated Nazareth. And them. No, of course, you know that. But you understand that stuff happens. Rivalry, right? Hometown rivalry. There could have been some prejudices against the city of Nazareth that, you know, that, that were in the back of his mind. But the main reason he said that is like John said, he knew the Scripture. No, 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 wait. Messiah does not come out of Nazareth. He knew the Scripture, and Nazareth's not mentioned in the Tanakh. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in the Midrash. He knew what the Scripture says, so he says, you know, he, he could have had some hometown prejudice. There's, you know, just the way he says this, can any good thing? He didn't just say the Messiah didn't come from there. He said, can any good thing come out of there? In other words, that place is just, it was a town they didn't like too much, okay? But he knew that Micah 5, 2 had said, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata." Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So he knew that. Listen, these guys knew the Scripture. And they didn't sit there and think, you know, I heard that somewhere. Let me get my concordance. Let me look up Bethlehem. No, they just knew the Scripture. They didn't have concordances. They were concordances because they knew so much Scripture. It was there. So what Nathaniel says here could be a dig against, you know, the town of Nazareth, and it could just be, some say this is a local proverb about Nazareth, but, you know, we don't really know. In John 7, 52, the Pharisees argued, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Of course, they had a prejudice against the northern part there anyway. Southern Judeans like this were just prejudiced against Galileans. Yeah, I think we have that today, you know, it's just there. All right. Now, since Nathaniel is a righteous Israelite who studies the Scripture, he might have just considered it to be a problem that Philip said Messiah was from Nazareth. Now, I know the Scriptures don't say that, so why would anyone else? And so Philip says, all right, sit down, get your Bible, let's talk about this. No, he doesn't go into any argument, he doesn't debate with him, he just says this, come and see, come and meet him, okay? Because that answers all the questions. That's all you need to do is meet him. You meet him, you'll find out right away that he is who I'm saying he is. He doesn't argue. Now, in verse 39, Yeshua issued such an invitation. Yeshua said, come and you will see. Remember, they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. 
This expression was a conventional form of imitation in rabbinic literature, drawing attention beforehand to something new, something important, something difficult. Philip is basically saying, if you come and meet him, you will see. That's all you need to do. And we see real quickly that that's exactly what happens. Yeshua saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This means he's a straightforward man. There's no hidden motives. He's a true representative of the chosen people. I bet he knew Psalm 32 too, how blessed is the man whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here's a man of no deceit. And it must have put a smile on his face. You know, wow, he recognizes who I am. He knows my character. This must have been an encouragement to him what Yeshua said. Nathanael was an Israelite indeed. The word indeed here is from the Greek alethos, which means true. Nathanael was a true Israelite. Now this reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Kath, it's warm in here. At least it is up here. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Now, you can replace Israelite with Jew if you want to. You know, it's not about outward. See, they were born of the tribe of Israel. They were born in Israel, one of the tribes. So, we're a Jew. He says, not outward. Nor is circumcision that what's outward. And that was a badge of Judaism. We had circumcised. That proves we are, you know, the right people. But he says, he's a Jew who's one inwardly. Doesn't have to do with what tribe you came from. And circumcision is that of the heart. See, Jeremiah taught this, but they missed it. That's what a true Israelite is. It's a hard thing. He was a true Israelite. He had a circumcised heart. People, this is really rare in an apostate nation. A nation of hypocrites. Now, there's a pun involved here in the use of the word Israelite. He's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Who was the first Israelite? Who was the first person that God named Israel. Jacob. Can you say of, if you said of Jacob he had no guile? <laughs> right. He was a rascal, okay? But that was, you know, that's what I think he's playing on here. You're an Israelite. Guess what? You're an Israelite of a pure heart. You have no guile. Yahweh gave Jacob, the son of Isaac, the name Israel after he wrestled with the angel of Yahweh. And one of, the great, one of his great failings was that he was a man of deception. He was full of guile. He deceived his own father in usurping his brother's birthright. The name Jacob meant deceitful or conniving. But Nathaniel's a true Israelite, not a deceiver. His heart's pure. So he's saying, you're a pure Israelite. You're not like, you know, Jacob. And so keep that in mind. There's a connection here now. He's, he's bringing Jacob into this story. Now, Yeshua's words to Nathaniel must have stopped him in his tracks. He never met Yeshua. He heard about him. You know, he said, hey, you got to meet this guy. This is a long promise. Ah, it can't be, I don't think, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So he's on his way to meet him. Never talked to him before. And Yeshua describes him and his character accurately. And he's like, what? How does he know me? How can he say that stuff? How did Yeshua know Nathaniel's character? All right. Was it because he's omniscient? 
Hmm? No. Okay, if it's due to his omniscience, then why did Yeshua say, but of that day or hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone? Is omniscience something that comes and goes? How could someone who's omniscient not know something? Now, here's the thing. Earlier in our study of this Gospel, I said that in the kenosis, Philippians chapter 2, the self-emptying of Christ when He becomes a man, Christ laid aside not His deity. He couldn't do that. He would not exist. Deity is who He is. But He laid aside the prerogatives of the deity. He laid aside the use of His attributes of deity to walk on this earth as a real man, a man under the control of the Holy Spirit. Christ is an example to us. How is He an example to us if He operates under the attributes of deity? I don't have those attributes. But if He comes to earth and operates under the attributes of a man, under the power of the Holy Spirit, then I can say, as long as I walk in the Spirit, I have that ability. Right? In 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Alright? The different gifts that were given to different people. It says, but to each one is giving the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The purpose of the gifts were to edify, to build up the body of Christ. Alright? For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. I believe that Christ had this spiritual gift that they called the word of knowledge. This was a gift by which the Holy Spirit enabled a first century believer to know and to instruct the assembly in truth that is now recorded in the New Testament. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament at that time. It was a flash of omniscience from Yahweh Himself, revealing what the person normally would not know. The word of knowledge is not knowledge that's acquired by diligent perseverance and hard work. It is direct revelation from Yahweh. It was the ability to grasp the truth about a present situation, seeing, knowing, and understanding as the Spirit sees, knows, and understands. Now, these gifts terminated in AD 70. With the second coming of Christ, when He returned, these gifts ended, the manna ended when they entered the land. They, didn't, they weren't needed anymore. All right, But I remember growing up hearing Pat Robertson all the time claim to have the gift of knowledge. And he would know that this is happening and that's happening. He'd know supernatural things. And, you know, he kind of protected this area. Because every time a hurricane comes, Pat prays it away or gets rid of it, you know, takes care of it. So he does look out for us. So we got to appreciate that. All right. Look at Acts chapter 5, because it wasn't only Yeshua, <coughs> excuse me, that had this gift. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Oh, Ananias must have got sick when he heard this. You know, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, Bartholomew had given money to the church. And they, and they look and they say, wow, everybody's praising Bartholomew. You know, look at how, what a great man's given so much. Let's give some money to the Lord. Let's sell the land. And we'll tell the church, we'll hang on to some of it. But we'll say we're giving it all. They could have kept it all to themselves when they sold it. They could have said we're giving you a part. They could have done any of that. The problem was they said they're giving it all. And they kept back some of it. Well, how does Peter know this? How does Peter know he's lying? But Ananias comes in, and he's got to be cocky feeling, you know, like, hey, I'm giving this big donation. I'm going to be a superstar today. And he walks in, and he's like, ah, oh, sick to hear Peter say, why are you lying? Why are you lying? 
while it remained unsold, did not remain your own? It was yours. You could do what you wanted after it was sold. Was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but God. You lied to man. You lied to God. And you know what happened next? He dropped dead. How did Peter know he was lying? How did this guy just drop dead on the spot? <laughs> he had to get to know. He knew something that he couldn't have not known any other way. All right? Well, how about this one in Acts 16? Remember, Paul, uh, they're out there preaching, and he gets beat for preaching and stuck in the jail. Now, he's in the inner prison, the Scriptures tell us, which is a, a room down inside the prison. There's no windows. It's a dark dungeon. They're in the stocks. There's an earthquake, all right? They're singing at midnight because the Scriptures say give praise to Him at midnight. So they're following Scripture. They're singing and praising God. You know, that's something we all do every time tragedy hits, right? Yeah, tragedies. I'm stretched out in the stalks. I'm in the inner dungeon. I've been beat. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. No, that's not us, okay? But that's them because he had a connection with a divine being. He's plugged in and he knows God's in control. So this earthquake happens and said, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he's about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. How did Paul know that? He's in the stocks down in the prison. He can't see this guard. How does he know what's going on? And he's yelling because he's got to yell from the inner prison. The guard hears him and was like, what? let's get some light. Let's go down there and see what's going on. And he, he falls down before Paul in silence. He's like, oh my word. Because he knows these guys got some insight here. Again, the word of knowledge. It's a flash of omniscience from God himself revealing what the person normally would not know. Christ functioned with this gift. Christ functioned with all the gifts. John 3.34 says, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. All right? He gives him the Spirit without measure. Christ didn't have this gift or that gift. He had all the gifts. He operated in all of them. Now, notice how it is. One of the gifts was the gift of powers. The gift of powers was the ability to deal with the demonic world, to cast out demons. But notice what it says about Christ. He says, if I cast out demons, how? By my omniscient power as Yahweh. That's not what he says. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. So he was operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was submitting to the power of the Spirit. His miracles were done in the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his divine nature. And Yeshua, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Again, a demonstration of the spiritual gift, the word of knowledge. Christ knew this only because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. In his incarnation, he was not omniscient. He walked up to the fig tree to get a fig only to find out there's none on it. He shouldn't even had to walk over there. He should have known that, right? He asked when he's in the crowd, the woman came up and grabbed the hem of his garment. He said, who touched me? Why did he have to ask that? He's omniscient. He's operating. Listen, this is so important theologically. Christ is here operating as a man. I'm a man. Okay? That gives me hope because if I trust in the Spirit, I can walk in the Spirit. And I can't do all these miracles because 
this age is gone. Now, miracles are not gone because God is God of miracles. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. So please, I'm not saying miracles are gone or God's changed in any way, but the gifts are gone. And so there's no individual you know, who has this gift. I run into people all the time today. They, they're people, most people believe in the gifts are here today. But you know what the, the, most, the gift that most people have today is? Helps. Helps, yes. I got to get the helps. What gift is that? I get to set up chairs at church. Wow. That's a supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you'd never figure out how to get them. I can bring a person as lost as the man in the moon in here, and they can set chairs up, okay? But that's the spiritual gift everybody has today. I don't, I've never met someone that told me they have to get the healing. I'd like to meet someone. Because I'd say, come on. I'd grab them and carry them right down to King's Daughters. Here you go. You got plenty of patience here. Let's clear this place out. For the glory of God, clear this place out. These little children are sick and dying. Clear it out. And guess what? There'll be a lot of believers. But that doesn't happen. Paul said, Tromophus, have I left at my lead? I'm sick. That's cruel. Paul had to get to healing. And he leaves someone there sick. All he had to do was put his hand on him and say, you know, and everything would have been well. But he didn't do it because it wasn't for Christians. That wasn't the purpose of it. All right? The purpose was not to make Christians well, to give Christians all this stuff. The purpose was to demonstrate the power of God. All right? So Christ laid aside the voluntary use of His divine attributes. He laid aside the progress of deity from His own will. He didn't use those for Himself. They were not surrendered. They were voluntarily restricted in keeping with the Father's plan. So Christ gave up any independent exercise of certain, certain divine attributes and living among men with their human limitations that He might become truly man. Dependence is a necessary characteristic of humanity. Right? People are dependent. You know, we are dependent upon God. Christ lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and all He did. And He's our example because that's how we're to live. And Christ, you say, I do always those things that please the Father. We can't say that, but we should be. That's the goal. I want to just do what the Lord wants me to do. So Christ commented to Nathaniel. Nathaniel responded to him and said, how do you know me? The Greek here literally states, from where? It's both end. From where do you know me? I mean, how can you know anything about me? To which Yeshua responds, before I called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you under that fig tree. Now, it's been suggested by biblical scholars that Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree studying Scripture. And that's not just something they're pulling out of their hat, so to speak. All right, The mention of the law in verse 45 has been used to support this theory. And the fig tree was known in Jewish rabbinic literature as the proper place for meditation. All right, There, you want to get out of the sun, all right? Especially during the day, you get out of the sun. But, you know, it's not a far, not a big guess or, you know, not a big stretch, I guess, to say he was meditating on Scripture. That's what these people did. All right? He didn't pull out his phone. He didn't pull out his iPad. He wasn't checking Facebook under the tree. You know, they didn't have anything else. And and to them, Scripture was everything. So anytime they had a spare minute, if they weren't working, they were going over the Scripture. So I don't think it's a stretch at all to think this guy's meditating on the Scripture. Here's a true Israelite. He's under the fig tree. He's studying Scripture. Some have gone so far as to suggest he's studying Genesis 28. Wow, that's not in the text at all. But again, they're connecting Jacob with this. And you'll see a little bit later, 
He's pulling all this together. If he's studying Jacob, and he's reading about Jacob, and Jacob goes to sleep, and he has this dream, and there's angels ascending and descending. Remember this later in this text that Glenn read? Now, there's no way to know if this is true, okay? But it really makes sense when you look at the whole context. He's an Israelite, and who there's no God. He's not like Jacob. Notice Nathaniel's response to Yeshua's words. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi! He calls him that because he's a rabbi, okay? And he says, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Just a minute ago, he goes, anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. So he came, and he saw, and his response is, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. He must have concluded, listen, if Yeshua saw, I'm under a fig tree, meditating on the Scriptures, Yeshua saw me sitting on that tree, there's something supernatural about this individual. Alright? He must be the Messiah. We've been waiting for the Messiah. This must be Him. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. In the Tanakh, Messiah was to be the Son of God and He was to be the King of Israel. In 2 Samuel, Yahweh says that David, to the King of Israel, said, when your days are complete, you will lie down with your father. She's speaking to David, Samuel. I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now, he's talking about here? Solomon or Yeshua, his greater son? I think both are involved in this, all right? He shall build a house for my name. Well, Solomon did that, but guess what? Yeshua really did that, okay? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. Now that can't be, you know, that can't be his son. That's not who he's talking about there. That's his greater son. He says, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. So there's kingship and sonship. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Now that's not Yeshua. But again, this text goes back and forth. At one level, this refers to David's son Solomon. But at another level, it refers to the son of David, the Messiah. Verse 13 says, I will establish the kingdom forever. There's going to come a descendant of David whose reign would never end. And when Shua was born, the angel said to Mary in Luke this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. There will be no end to his kingdom. Now look, in Samuel it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The angel tells Mary... His kingdom is not going to have an end. Yeshua fulfilled 2 Samuel 7.13 and its greater prophecy. But notice that 2 Samuel 7 not only calls him a king, he will reign, but he's going to be the son of God. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. From the time of David on, the Messiah was known as the son of God in a unique way. So the angel goes on to say to Mary in Luke 1, The angel answered and said to her, Truly the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Holy Child shall be called Son of God. So the Son of God and the King of Israel were linked in the Tanakh as twin titles of Messiah. You can see this also in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh saying, and against His anointed, now that's the Messiah, against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, 
and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord scoffs. Here's man, you know, making plans. We're going to overthrow Yahweh. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. There's the kingship. My holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. So here we have Messiah, king and son, all referring to the same person. That's the background for Nathaniel's outburst in John 149. Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. He means you're the one expected. You're the one we've been reading about in the Tanakh. You're the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah. The time of fulfillment is here and he's excited. The kingdom of God is about to be established on earth and Israel's enemies will be destroyed and defeated. The Messiah will take the nations for his inheritance. Now, at this time, at the time of this declaration, Nathaniel and the others who met Yeshua and proclaimed him to be Messiah and King most likely had more of a political understanding for these terms. In other words, to them, Messiah was going to be a physical ruler who overthrew Rome and set them free. So that's, you know, maybe some of the excitement's there, but I think these guys are pretty spiritual. I think they know that there's more to it than just that. They think, you know, we're going to free Israel and, you know, usher in the Davidic age of prosperity. And, you know, I don't think they fully understood him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 43 until after the resurrection. You know, the disciples are with him all this time and, and you get that they're like not getting it. What's going on here? You know, they just don't get it. And then they finally do get it. Well, Nathaniel had just been called an Israelite. So in calling Yeshua king of Israel, he's basically saying, I'm submitting to you. You're the king. I'm an Israelite. You're the king of Israel. Another thing about Son of God in the Tanakh, Israel is God's Son. And in John, Yeshua is presented as the true Israel. So Nathaniel's declaration of faith and Yeshua's response is echoed, I think, in Paul's passage in Romans 9. He says, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now they're saying, well, doesn't Israel get to all these promises? Don't they get back in the land? Don't they get all this stuff? He goes, all the promises of God haven't failed. Here's the problem. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay? Just because someone is a descendant from Israel doesn't mean they're an Israelite. See, Nathaniel was a true Israelite. He had trusted the Messiah. That's what made him a true Israelite. All these other people were thinking, just because I come from the right tribe, I'm in. No, he says there's a distinction between Israel. You got national Israel, you got true Israel. Two very different groups. Hopefully, those in national Israel would come to faith in him. But the true Israelite trusts in Yeshua. So Nathaniel's a true Israelite. He's following the true Israel. Verse 50, Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? That's all it took? I just said, hey, I saw you. Oh, wow. Well, that is something important. You know, something's going on there. And again, there's a lot of anticipation. He said, you'll see greater things than these. You know, I would have got pretty excited at that point. Man, I'm impressed already, okay? I'm impressed already. I can't wait to see what else I'll see. Now, the because I said to you, and you will see greater things, is a direct address to a singular person. It's singular in the Greek text. But in verse 51, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's plural. So verse 50, he's talking to Nathaniel. When we get to verse 51, he shifts. Yeshua is saying to Nathaniel, if you follow me, you're going to see a lot greater manifestations of my divine glory than you just saw. We're just getting started, all right? What are the greater things he's talking about? Well, 
We're going to see seven miracles in this gospel, and they're pretty, you know, pretty impressive. You know, just besides seeing the glory of God and all the the time he spends with them. All right, verse fifty one says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heavens open. The heavens open. That's pretty impressive. Heaven's going to open. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly, I say to you. Literally, in the Hebrew, this is amin, amin. And Yeshua's doubling of this term is found only in John's Gospel. It appears 25 times in John's Gospel. Amin is the form of the Hebrew word for faith, emet, which means to be firm. It was used in the Tanakh as a metaphor for stability and trustworthiness, and it came to be translated faith or faithfulness. However, in time, it came to be used for an affirmation. And in this, when it's in the initial position of the sentence, it's a, u- a unique way of drawing attention to Yeshua's significant, trustworthy statements or revelation from Yahweh. He's beginning to say something. You got to, in other words, pay attention. I got something to tell you here. I mean, I mean, I say to you, he says, you will see heavens open. Angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, again, there's a change here to the plural, a plural pronoun and a plural verb. So this is addressed to a larger congregation. He's not just talking to Nathaniel anymore. He's talking to a greater group, the other disciples that was there. And he says, you will see the heavens open. This is a perfect active participle, which implies they're going to open and remain open. The term heavens is plural because in Hebrew it's plural. This picture is the insight that people on earth receive to what God's doing in heaven. Heaven's open. You're getting direct communication from heaven. That's the idea here. You're getting some communication from the heavens. The angels of God ascending and descending. Where's this a reference to? Okay, this is Genesis 28, very clearly. And so this is why people, you know, scholars want to connect this back. You got the, you know, connection of Jacob, you know, being a deceiver and this true Israelite being without guile. And then you get down here and you got the angels. So this puts us back in that text that, you know, hey, it wouldn't make sense. You think this would really grab Nathaniel's attention if he's sitting under a fig tree and he's meditating on Genesis 28? And then he meets Yeshua and he says, you're not like Jacob, you're a true Israelite. And you're going to see angels ascending. I'd be like the hair in the back of my neck standing up. Whoa, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. I mean, this is some kind of connection here. Jacob in Israel. Look at Genesis 28. He had a dream. Behold, a ladder was set on earth, which stopped reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Well, it says ladder, and I'm calling it a stairway. Why? Because there's no song called the ladder to heaven. <laughs> no, really, that's not why at all. The Hebrew word here is sulam. And sulam is much better translated staircase. All right, than a ladder. So Jacob saw this staircase. It started on the earth and the top reached to heaven. And the angels of God are going up and down this stairway. Traveling up and down. Now in Genesis 28, Jacob has left his home. Why do you leave home? You remember? He's running from his brother. Now, it's under the disguise of he's going to find a wife, right? But he's really leaving. Why? Because he's... His brother's pretty ticked off. He stole his brother's birthright. He's been cheating his brother, deceiving his brother. He's a scoundrel. So he's running for his life, basically. All right? He's afraid of Esau. Esau got a hold of him. He probably would have killed him. And so he fled from his home. Now, he's, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80 miles from his home. Now, keep in mind, 
that these people thought a lot differently than we think, okay? In those days, all deities were local, okay? There are gods over all the different territories. All the Baals were associated with some particular place. All right, you remember in the Sumerians when when Samaria they brought the king brought all these foreign people into Samaria, you know, to re-inhabit it. The lions are coming in, they're killing them, right? And so they say, "We don't know the custom of the gods of this land. Can you get someone who used to live here to explain to us how this god works so we don't keep offending him getting killed?" Because they had this idea of local deities. Remember their Israel's in battle and their enemies are saying, well, their God's the God of the valley, so we should do fine in the mountains. You know, no, it's Yahweh's the God of everything, but see, they don't get that. All right. So this is the idea in Jacob's mind. He's thinking, here I am. I'm away from home. I'm away from my God. I'm away from Yahweh. Yahweh gave promises to Abraham and Isaac. So he's probably thinking, does the power of God prevail when I get this far away from home? I mean, I'm out of territory. I'm a long ways away. Remember back in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Yahweh divided up the nations. The nations, despite everything he did, the nations would not follow him. They wouldn't obey him. They wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't serve him. So he's, Yahweh literally gets to a point, he says, I'm sick of it. All right? After the Tower of Babel, that's the last straw. I'm done with you people. He says, go, and he divides the nations. There's 70 nations in Genesis 10. He takes 70 gods and places them over these 70 nations and says, I'm done with you. These gods are yours. We see that in Deuteronomy 32. This is, uh, Deuteronomy 32 gives us Israel's worldview, so to speak. It says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. By that, he's taking these nations and placing a God over them, telling them, here's the land you have as this nation. This is your land. This is your God. All right. When he divided mankind, again, Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of sons of God. In other words, he put a God over each one that he put in these different places. Now, a lot of translations will say sons of Israel. That's a horrible translation. I use the ESV here because the ESV is based on the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls text, which given us much more insight. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this text says sons of God, in the Septuagint, it says sons of angels. All right? Sons of Israel is just a bad translation. Israel didn't exist at that time. All right? You don't get to Israel until Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham. So he can't divide him according to the sons of Israel. There's no Israel. But he did it according to the sons of God. And then he says, but Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot of inheritance. I'm giving all those to those people. And you go to Deuteronomy 4 and he chides Israel. Because he says, look, and you look up at the sun and the moon and the stars and you worship them. Don't do that. He says, those are allotted to the nations. Those things are for the nations to worship. You're supposed to worship me. But see, they just kept, even when he called the new people and started all over, those new people were as messed up as all the other people. All right? So he says, I got to fix this. I got to do something about it. Man can't seem to help himself. I'm going to help him out. The Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his his allotted inheritance. All right? Now, and so he has this dream. In this dream, he sees a stairway, and the stairway's, you know, going up to earth. The top reaches heaven. Angels of God are ascending and ascending. And then the Lord stood beside that stairway. Now, the text says, And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, 
God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you and to your offspring. Now, many of the translations here say above, but it's likely in the Hebrew this means by the side of. In other words, Yahweh's not in heaven. He's down beside the stairway. And later Jacob will say, surely Yahweh is in this place. He's here. I didn't know it. Notice the things that Yahweh tells him. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, God of Isaac, the land on which you lie will give you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He reiterates the promise made to his grandfather and his father. And then he says this, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You know, Jacob, I'm not a tribal deity over just one certain place. Wherever you go, I'll be there. I'm your God. I'll bring you back to this land. Don't worry, you're coming back here. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to do. He's telling Jacob, I'm going to be with you. Until I've finished everything I promised to do, you can count on that. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he says, Jacob awoke from his sleep, he says, surely Yahweh is in this place. Wow, this is pretty cool. This is not even his territory. And here he is, you know? I wonder what the God of this territory thinks of Yahweh being in his territory. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? You know, he said, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate to heaven. I mean, heaven is opening up, and the angels are coming down. So the meaning here is essentially there's communication between heaven and earth. The stairway suggests that. There's communication between Yahweh and heaven and Jacob, his servant on earth. It's incredible. The Lord is communicating with him. That's the message of Jacob. The stairway, there's communication. Now, when Yeshua refers to the angels of God ascending and descending, it's not on a stairway. What are they ascending on? The Son of Man. See, Yeshua here is substituted for the stairway because now Yeshua, is the stairway to heaven. Alright? He's the place of contact between the earth and heaven. He is substituted Son of Man because He's the mediator between earth and heaven. Yeshua is the new Bethel, house of God. He said, this is surely the house of God. Well, that's Yeshua. He's the place where God is present. Heaven is open and Yeshua has appeared. And from now on, Yeshua is going to be the place where God appears to man. There is no longer any holy geography. We don't go to a certain place. We don't need to go to a certain place. That is so cool. We don't need to take a pilgrimage somewhere to meet with God. He'll meet with us wherever we are. Wherever we are. Yeshua is the meeting place. Yeshua was promising Nathaniel that he would prove to be the key to access to God and communication with God. God has revealed Himself to Israel, the man, and the nation. In a dream at Bethel previously, He revealed Himself to Jacob. Now God revealed Himself to be the true Israelite, the true Israel to the true Israelite, Nathaniel, To all Israel and all the world directly through Yeshua. He's the stairway. That's why you'll see angels of God ascending and descending upon Him. Because He is the access to heaven. 
And he calls him, you're going to see it on the Son of Man. This is Yeshua's favorite title for himself. He used it over 80 times. It comes from Daniel 7. In this gospel, the term Son of Man is always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation that he came to bring. You know, Nathaniel couldn't have missed the implications of this statement. I said especially, just think about it. Think he is meditating on Genesis 28. And he's like, wow, so cool. You know, he's, he's got access to heaven. God is there. And now he's finding out, hey, Yeshua is this access. You got what Jacob never had, what Jacob dreamed of. Here is the true access. Just as Yeshua stood beside Jacob, or Yahweh stood beside Jacob, made a promise to him, Yahweh now stands behind beside Nathanael. The oath Yeshua makes to Nathanael as the Son of Man is now, he is now the heavenly stairway of Jacob's vision. He is the center of God's glory and the point of contact between heaven and earth. Heaven's open. God is communicating with us through His Son. So in this text here, in the, in the latter part, after the prologue, you got John the Baptist telling his disciples, follow Yeshua. Then you have Andrew following Yeshua. And then finding his own brother, he goes out and finds Peter and says, we found the Messiah. He's excited. So Peter goes and says, gets Philip. He says, we found Yeshua. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, brings him to Christ. People, this is how it's supposed to happen. Go out and tell somebody. You know, so often we're pressured. You've got to go out and tell a hundred people. Just tell one. They tell one. And they tell one. And they tell one. It spreads, but you've got to tell somebody. And listen, if you're excited about Christ, it should be obvious and people should see that in you. And I think people even question you. What's wrong with you, they might say. You know, what's wrong with you? I mean, you don't act like you stand out from the crowd. I think I told you the story before, but when we moved here, I'm on the hunt for Christians. You know, I just moved, just moved to this area, strange area, don't know anybody. You know, we want to find some Christians, so I'm just looking like crazy. Everybody, I'm just following for, and this guy walks into the line shack where I was working in the military, and I'm watching him, I'm watching him, I'm watching him for five minutes. He didn't cuss at all. And his language was not like everybody else's, and you know, everybody else, you can't get two words out without one of them being a cuss word, you know. So after about five minutes, I walked over and says, pardon me, are you a Christian? He goes, yeah, I am. How'd you know? And I'm like, cool. I introduced myself and we became family friends. You know, him and his wife came over and spent a lot of time with us. And, you know, it just, it was evident. I think it should be that way. How many of you ever heard of Edward Kimball? Doesn't ring a bell. How many ever heard of D.L. Moody? Everybody heard of D.L. Moody, right? Without Edward Kimball. There's no D.L. Moody. Okay? And this is, what we, this is what I want you to understand. When you share the gospel with somebody, you never know who they are and what they're going to do with what you have shared with them. You know? Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who led one of his pupils, D.L. Moody, to Christ. And it's an interesting story because Kimball was a very timid, very soft-spoken man, but he decided he needed to talk to Moody. Moody was 19 years old. He was a shoe salesman. And so he just felt, i got to talk to this guy. Moody was untaught. He was ignorant about the Bible at this point. Well, Kimball decided, I'm going to a store where he sells, sells shoes. I'm going to talk to him. He's going to the store. He says, I almost chickened out. I'm standing outside the store for a while thinking, I, I just don't. I can't do this. You know. Finally, he goes in. And he's so nervous, he's stumbling all over his words. 
So later he says, I have no clue what I even said to him. He said, I know it was something about Christ and his love. He admitted it was a very weak appeal. You know, we're told today, boy, you got to have this down. You know, say just right, the right point, right time. You know, or you're gonna, they're not, they're gonna miss out on it all. All right. Moody trusted Christ there and then in that store, and God later used Moody mightily to lead thousands of people to Christ in America and in England. His impact continues today through Moody Bible Institute, where they continue to send thousands of people around the world to proclaim the gospel. All because Edward Kimball shared with one man. And see, that's the thing, people. That's what it's all about. That's how God put it together. And that's what we see in this text. You see someone coming to Christ, and they're excited, and they run, and they tell somebody else about it. That's how we propagate. We tell somebody. And you say, well, just one person, focus on one. Start there, okay? Maybe you could tell two, but let's tell one first. And then go and tell somebody else. And like I said, you never know who you're talking to. You never know what that person's going to do. The guy who gave me that track I talked about earlier, I run into him occasionally. He lives in our hometown area, Pennsylvania. And he just is always, he's always telling me, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for preaching the Word of God. You know, and he... He remembers that day. He handed me a track. And so I preach now because some man took the time to hand his friend a chick publication track. People, we don't know what God's going to do and who he's going to use, but it has to start with us sharing the gospel because that's what God decided to use as a means of communication is us. And I think it's kind of exciting. I'm glad to be part of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for your grace in our lives, Lord, and for all that you've provided for us. Thank you for this example that we see here, Lord. Lord, I thank you that we have a stairway to heaven in Yeshua. And it's through him that we have communion with the Trinity, with the Godhead. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for what you've given us. You not only provided a stairway to heaven, you grabbed us and carried us up. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen. Questions or comments? How in the world did it get to be that late? Must have been Glenn talking too long. <laughs> John. That was a question. Was he eating figs? Was he what? Was, was he eating figs? Oh, was he? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm sure he was munching on some figs while he's. Uh, that's a good way to meditate, you know. Figs for energy. It is an eschatological reference to the Israel. Right. He being under the fig tree says he was the fruit of well, like, there is a lot of, lot of figurative stuff there, no doubt, you know. And that's why, you know, you, and John does this all through his gospel. He uses stuff on the surface. If you don't think about it, if you don't dig down deep, you're going to miss it all, but there's a lot of stuff here. Yes, meditating. He doesn't just say meditating on the fig tree because I, you know, picked out some kind of tree. It wasn't just happened to be a fig tree. There's a lot of symbolism in that tree. Again, that's where the rabbis studied. That was a representation of Israel. There's just so much there. John does that all through. You've got to be pay attention when you go through. But it also gives me great encouragement that uh, when God talks about the eschatological future of Israel, he almost always uses Jacob. He's, he uses the term Jacob, not Israel. The house of Jacob. Now that gives me great encouragement. <laughs> That's right. Amen. I thought it was very enlightening, Brother David. Well, thank you, Glenn. I never thought of that. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing with the Word of God. 
you know, I saw him in victory. That's how I knew you were a righteous guy. That never made sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. I just have a silly comment, but a kind of question. But I was thinking it's probably a good idea that we don't know what Edward Kimball said because we turn it into some right. kind of formula. Boy. Boy, amen. Amen. We are so good at that, aren't we? And the other qu- the question I had, and it's probably it's, it's not a big question, but um, you were saying that Yeshua um, was talking to Philip, and then the second you, but he said to Philip, you... So where does that turn into plural? From Verse 51 changes. Verse 50 is singular. But he says, I'm saying to Philip, you. At least up there. Up there? <laughs> you know, first right. to him, but then in that first item habit, he said to, to him, him, truly you will see. But then he uses the plural. In other words, truly you, all you, right, right, all you are going to see this, Okay. In other words, I think there was more than just Nathaniel standing there, obviously, because he gets plural. He's telling you, you're all going to see this. All right? He's excited, but you're all going to see this. We wouldn't know that, though, unless we... Well, yeah. Because it does look like he's Right, right, exactly. The older translations, because the four pronouns in the older translations are you and your, and when you see me and thy, those are singular. You're talking about Young's? Well, and, and King James. Okay, yeah. Anytime you see thee and thy and stuff like that, that's a singular pronoun, and the you and yours are actually plural. It would be nice if you could take the best of every translation and put them all together. You know, because some have strengths. I mean, there's even times the NIV is good, you know? Not very many, but there's times that it's good. You know, so if you could just take the very best of each one and put them all together, and you, wow, have a good translation, a modern translation. Like I said, the reason I like the ESV is because, you know, it, it uses the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, you know, new information that a lot of these old texts didn't have. And it uses Septuagint, you know, so it, it's trying to get all the information to give you the best of what's there. 